Uh, we believe that the word of God is important. We believe that God is not silent and he's spoken to us in his word. And so he's told us something about who he is right here. And we're going to be looking in the gospel of John. And we picked John because we're actually going through one of the letters that John wrote. And so this is his gospel, which is the account of Jesus' life. And so we thought, why don't we stay with what John has been talking? And then um, it'll shed light, even on his letter that he wrote, 1 John. So we're going to be looking at the resurrection account. But before we do, uh, turn to John chapter 18. John chapter 18. And I want to recall something we talked about on Friday night when we looked at Jesus' uh, trial, his eventual crucifixion. And near the end of chapter 18, if you'd pick it up with me, uh, in verse 33, I want to remind you of what uh, was happening. Because I think uh, John's whole argument is, is really tied to this idea of Jesus as the king. And so if you don't understand uh, the backstory, you won't understand how important the resurrection is to proving that this is true. So verse 33 says this, So Pilate entered the headquarters again. Pilate was the governor. Uh, he was the Roman official in charge of Jerusalem because Rome occupied uh, the whole nation and the city of Jerusalem. And so the religious leaders had taken Jesus because he was claiming to be the son of God, that he was claiming to be the Messiah, and they took him to Pilate and said, Pilate, we want you uh, to, to uh, convict this man of blasphemy, and we want you to convict him uh, to crucifixion. So they brought him back to Pilate a second time, and Pilate said this to Jesus. Verse 33, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this on your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and your chief priest have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of the world. Then Pilate said to him, so where, or so you are a king, Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, that's Jesus, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. Do you want me to release, to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried again, no, not this, but Barabbas. But Barabbas was a robber. So here's the scene. Jesus is clearly not denying the fact that he's a king. Pilate is recognizing that they called Jesus a king. Uh, the Jewish officials are recognizing that Jesus is calling himself the king, and they don't like it. And all these things are playing, and they're building up and at the end of the day, the question is, is Jesus the king that he says he is? Okay, now flip over to John 20. Flip over to John 20. Spoiler alert, in John 19, Jesus ends up being convicted and crucified, buried in the ground. Buried in the ground. 
seems like the answer to that question, is Jesus truly the king, has been answered. He's in the ground, can't be king. John chapter 20. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been rolled away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. That's just hilarious, because John's the other disciple, and he's just making a quick note that he beat Peter to the tomb. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen clothes lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen clothes lying there as well, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen clothes, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciples who had reached the, to- the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they had not understood the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary, that's Mary Magdalene, stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be a gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teachers. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to the Father and your Father, to God and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. This is an incredible account. It's an incredible account, and I want to explain a couple of things to you that will help you understand the magnitude of this account. Now, what's so important about this account uh, is that it actually happened. The resurrection is not an idea or a concept. We all must rise it's actually happened. It actually happened. And here's a couple of reasons that I, that I think help us to realize that this actually happened. The first is that Mary Magdalene is not the prime candidate that you would put as the first eyewitness of the resurrection if you wanted people to believe that it was true. You wouldn't do it. And the reason you wouldn't do it is, one, she's a woman. And in that day, women were not even allowed to give testimony in a court of law. If they were eyewitnesses, too bad. You better find a man who was an eyewitness because their testimony would not 
he accepted. The other is that Mary Magdalene, if, uh, in the Gospels we read about her, she was somebody that Jesus had found who was demon-possessed. Now what that probably means is that her reputation was not stellar. Because most people that had uh, demon possession, uh, well, you can imagine what kind of life they might have lived. And so, why would the gospel writer, if he was just trying to make up a story about the idea of resurrection or the concept of resurrection, why would he decide to plug this Mary Magdalene as the first eyewitness? And in fact, all the other gospels say that Mary Magdalene was the first at the tomb, the first to see it empty. And the first to see Jesus resurrected. You wouldn't make this kind of stuff up. You could think of a lot more clever way to convince people of the truth of this story. The second thing that I want to point out is this. Um, When John writes about the empty tomb and the linen, why, why does he go into so much detail about the linen? What's so important about the linen? Get to the good stuff about Jesus. Here's what's so important about the empty tomb and the linen. Most of the early eyewitnesses uh, came to faith in Jesus uh, because he was the resurrected Lord, not because uh, they could not find his corpse, but because they found Christ alive, okay? But why is it so interesting that John talks about the empty tomb? This is why it's so interesting. The empty tomb and the grave clothes sitting there prove uh, the fact that his body was not just moved. Because if his body was just moved somewhere else, it would not make sense to unwrap uh, the clothes, the grave uh, linens, unwrap the head linen and fold it in a nice place. John is pointing to the fact that the first time he believed, remember what it said, and the other disciples saw and believed, was not that he had seen the risen Christ, but that he had seen the empty tomb. And this is so important theologically because empty tomb, the empty tomb and the grave clothes rule out uh, this idea of reinterpreting the resurrection, which a lot of people want to do. They want to reinterpret the resurrection and say that it's indistinguishable from Uh, Jesus' immortality or the idea of maybe like ghostly visitations. This is what a lot of people think about because it's obvious that the disciples saw something. It's obvious that they saw something and so people will want to say things like, well, they just thought they saw Jesus. There were hallucinations. But But the whole point of what John's doing here, he said, no, the first time I believed is when I saw the empty tomb and the, and, and the linens. Because Jesus' pre-death body and his post-resurrection body have a continuity. They're they're the same body. Now, there was a transformation that took place. But what he's saying is the tomb is empty. The grave clothes are still there. Jesus has risen bodily. Not just his personality continues on in some spiritual way, but that his physical body is actually resurrected from the dead. And so you can, you can question the integrity of the disciples or the apostles, but you can't question the clarity with which they explain the kind of resurrection. This is just really important. You can't question 
the type of resurrection that they're talking about. They're talking about the type of resurrection that leaves an empty tomb and nobody can account for the body, not the Jewish officials who don't want this to be true, not the Roman guards who have to explain how they let people get by them during the night. The only thing that explains it in the way they present it is an actual full bodily resurrection. And the other thing that you can't question is whether or not the disciples believed it. Now you can question whether or not they'd lost their minds, but they truly believed it. And the reason we know this is because every single one of them died a martyr's death, claiming that they'd seen the risen Christ. So it's the historicity of this event that changes everything. Not the idea, not the same sort of notion that we see in movies and other stories, but the reality. This is a real life event, space-time history. Jesus has risen from the, from the dead. So Jesus' kingship is not based on some sort of mythical ideology or some realm of fiction. It's based on reality, that he actually conquered death and rose from the grave. Needed to say that. Now, pick it back up with me. Pick it back up with me. As now Mary is conversing with who she thought was the gardener, which is just, again, if you don't think God has a sense of humor, Mary thinks he's a gardener. Well, there's some implications there that we won't go into, but God is the great gardener. So, Jesus asks a couple of questions to Mary. And at first glance, these questions seem uh, pretty stale, Right? The two questions that Jesus asks to Mary are these. Woman, why are you weeping and whom are you seeking? Now at first, and I think Mary probably experienced this way when she still thought it was the gardener, but I bet as she thought back of what is Jesus actually saying, her understanding of the question probably changed, just like our understanding of the question should change. The first question, why are you weeping? Jesus is actually, very subtly, reprimanding her for weeping. Why? Because he's saying, don't cry, I'm not dead. Now, of course, she didn't realize it because she still thought he was the gardener. And the second question is similar. At first you think, whom are you seeking, Jesus says. And at first it seems very normal. She's saying, well, I'm looking for the body of Jesus. I was one of his disciples. I followed him. I want to give him a proper burial. Very simple question. But looking back, and I think as we look back, we see the bigger question, which is this. Whom are you seeking? What kind of king are you seeking? Did you not know who I am? And so she's asking him to reflect on what kind of Messiah she was expecting Jesus to be. Whom are you seeking? We can ask ourselves the same question. What kind of Messiah are we seeking? And the implied answer is this. Mary, whom are you seeking? Your idea of the Messiah is far too small. I didn't just come here to be a good teacher. I didn't just come here to be a political leader. I came here to conquer sin and death. Whom are you seeking? Mary, 
your estimate of me is far too small. And so the evangelistic implications of John writing this and of Mary realizing this, I think, are transparent. Like Mary, we hope for far too little. We don't even know how much we can truly hope for. So we box in our expectations of who God is, what he's capable of, what Jesus is really all about, what salvation looks like, what the king should truly be. And it's understandable, right? Because hoping big enough is hard. Hoping big enough is hard. And we can't really blame Mary because she's never seen anybody die and come back three days later. And the disciples didn't realize it. They didn't really know what Jesus was up to while he was up to it. I mean, just think of John and uh, Peter. <laughs> they see the empty tomb and then they go back home. I don't even think they fully understood what was going on. But here's where we're a little bit different than Mary. We've got this book right here. We've got this book and we've got John's account of Jesus coming back from the grave. And so we know what God is capable of. We know that his promises are true. We know that he is the kind of king who can even conquer death. And so our faith isn't blind. Our faith is informed. And it's informed by the gospel, by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? So we are in a privileged position because we can look back and see the kinds of things that Jesus did that he called his shot and that he was killed and that he went to battle with death and then he came back victorious. We can see that. And so our faith is not blind, it's informed. And so what kind of king then do we serve? When we read about him, when we study him, what kind of king is this Jesus? Well, there's a couple things that all kings have in common and that Jesus has in a special way. The first is that all kings have power. All kings have power. Power over nations, power over borders, power over economics, over politics. But what do you want in your king? Do you want to just stop there? Jesus says, I'm a different kind of king. His resurrection proves it. That this king actually has power over death itself. Death itself. What kind of king do you want to serve? What kind of king do you want to serve? Jesus says, I'd love to have you serve me. I have power over death. Yeah, I want my king to have power over borders and economics and politics. But wouldn't it be nice if my king had power over death? Yeah, I'll take that. Check, please. I'll take uh, one king with power over death. Hold the arrogance. That sounds pretty good to me. Number two, kings have armies. And we see in the account, as Mary peers into the tomb, she sees two of Jesus' angels sitting there. Now here's what's great about Jesus' army compared to the kings of the world. Now these, these were Roman, uh, so we see in Matthew that the Jews, in fear that the disciples would come and steal the body, actually put, um, they put like a, a Roman guard. These are like the best trained soldiers in the world at the time and definitely the best trained in the, in the city of Jerusalem and he puts him there because he doesn't want the disciples to come steal the body and then claim that Jesus had risen because Jesus had predicted that he would do this. But what happens is uh, Matthew tells us that 
the angel comes to roll away the stone and the Roman guards are terrified and they tremble, it says, like dead men. What does that mean? They curled up in the fetal position as the army of God. One, maybe two guys. They don't even have to do or say anything and the Roman guard is brought to infancy. All kings have armies, but this is the kind of army... I want to get behind this king. The kind of army where two dudes can come and get people to tremble just by their presence. That's the army of God. All kings have armies. Three, kings have scars from battle. What, we'll, what we see in uh, the account is after, after uh, Mary goes back to the disciples, Jesus ends up uh, revealing himself to the disciples and eventually to Thomas. Thomas wasn't there at the first appearance. He's there at the second. And in both cases, uh, Jesus shows them his scars. Why is that? Why does Jesus show his scars? Because he wants to show that what he's accomplished took great sacrifice. Because kings come back from war and they have scars. And they're reminders of the cost of kingship. Death was not defeated without a price. Jesus paid the ultimate price on the cross. He died for our sin. He absorbed the wrath of God. We've been talking about it in 1 John. He's become the propitiation for our sin. He's taken upon himself. And he has scars. And he shows them. He says, look at these scars. Look at these scars. And I actually think that those scars will never go away. That when we are reunited with Jesus again, when he comes back, or we uh, die and go to be with him, he will still have his scars because it's a reminder of the cost it took to win the kingdom for us. Four, kings liberate, kings liberate. And so we have these pictures of Mary and the disciples doubting Thomas, and they all, have, uh, they all are engulfed by this human emotion. Mary's engulfed with grief when she's at the tomb. The disciples are engulfed in fear, and Thomas is engulfed in doubt. And here's the great thing. Then Jesus appears to them. He doesn't appear to them before they stop grieving, before they stop fearing, or before they stop doubting. He appears to them in the midst of that. And what always happens when Jesus appears to us in the midst of our human emotion, their condition is transformed. So Mary is grieving, and what does she do as soon as she realizes it's Jesus? What does it say? She runs to tell the disciples. So her grief is changed into mission. What do the disciples do? If you read on in chapter 20, it says uh, they feared, and then they were overjoyed. They were transformed. And Thomas, of course, doubting Thomas, he doubted. He said, I won't believe until I see the scars and I touch them myself. And so his doubt, when he touched the scars of Jesus, was turned to belief, to faith. So Jesus always liberates us. He always liberates us from whatever we're going through. And ultimately, he will liberate us from death itself. He was liberated from death through the power of God. And that's the significance of the resurrection, that Jesus 
can and will liberate us from death itself. One day, it's his promise, and he's 100% keeping his promises. Five, kings merit devotion and allegiance, and Jesus is no different. When we realize that he is the king, he desires, he desires our full devotion, allegiance, and loyalty. He's the king. He's the king of kings, and if it's true, he desires it. But here's the difference between his kingship and the kingship of the world. Jesus will never put a sword to your throat and say, you must believe in me. That's not how he does allegiance and devotion. He simply offers, he shows himself to be worthy of all, and he says, come, serve me, be with me, love me as I've loved you. But he he deserves it, our devotion and our allegiance. Finally, kings, if you, uh, if you ever think about kings, kings don't tend to know their subjects by name, do they? They tend to know categories of people that are in their world and uh, maybe even they're a good king and they run things very well. But Jesus is very different and this is my favorite part of the story. That when Mary still thinks that Jesus is a gardener, he uses what term? He says, woman. And he asks her questions. Why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? And then, and then what happens? He uses the generic term, as many kings would, in the first, and she doesn't recognize him. And then in the second, she uses, he uses her personal name and says Mary. And immediately, she recognizes him as her king. That's what's so different about this Jesus. King Jesus is different because the personal name is so important in this kingdom. The personal name. He knows us by name. He calls us by name. And you know what else? We get to call him by name. God did not remain some distant concept or idea. We don't pray to some textbook version of who God is. We pray to a God who came in, took on flesh, and walked in our shoes. His name is Jesus, and we pray to Jesus. Because the personal name is so important in the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of Jesus. And he calls us by name. He says Mary, and she, I mean, you can just imagine the moment when she hears her name spoken by the king of the universe. It's a powerful Powerful reminder that in God's kingdom, the personal name is important. God wants a personal relationship with each one of us. He doesn't want a general relationship with general people. He wants a personal relationship, and he'll call us by name. He'll say David. He'll say Will. He'll say Stacy. So, Mary, like the disciples, like Peter, like John, like all the others, Their problem was not in expecting too much out of King Jesus. Their problem was that they didn't expect enough. They thought they they would have settled for him just kicking out the Romans, settled for him just making life a little bit easier, setting the economics straight, balancing things out. You see, these are the things we hope for from our kings. Our expectations are far too small. Theirs were far too small. And so when Jesus came, they were confused and they didn't see him for what he truly was. Our hopes are too small because our kings are too small. We need bigger kings. And this would be Jesus' stump speech, right? 
Like I said, kings go out in battle and only one returns. And it works the same in American politics. Kings go out and only one remains at the end of the day. And so if Jesus was touring around our country giving his stump speech, here's what he'd say. My power is unmatched. Not even death itself can hold me. My love is unselfish. Nothing gets in my way of manifesting my love for my people. My reign is unending. There's no end to my term, no expiration date in my kingdom. It lasts forever. My attention to detail is uncanny. No one's personal name is forgotten in my kingdom, and you actually get to call me by name too. That'd be a stump speech. And here's the two questions we have to answer But first, we've got to ask them. We've got to ask this question. Who is our king? Who is your king? At the end of the day, you have to decide for yourself who your king's going to be. I can't make that decision for you. Your family of origin can't make that decision for you. Your college professions can't make that decision for you. You've got to make it for yourself. You've got to consider for yourself and decide, who am I going to serve as king? Who am I going to serve as king? And the second question is related. If you still got your Bibles, open to John 19, real quick. It's so interesting that these are the two questions that the people of Jesus' days were asked, and we're asked the same question. John chapter 19, verse 15 says this. Pilate brings Jesus back out to the people one last time. And he says this, they, that's the the crowd, cried out, away with him, away with Jesus, crucify him. And Pilate said this, shall I crucify your king? And look what the chief priest said, we have no king but Caesar. The people who wanted out of of, of the control of the Roman Empire say, we have no king but Caesar. And so you have to ask, who do you want to be your king And what are you going to do with King Jesus? Are you going to crucify him or are you going to serve him? The same question was asked, what should I do with this King Jesus? Crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. Now here's here's the deal. However you answer these questions, it's going to change. It's going to change your life because if you serve King Jesus, he's got a way of doing things that's very different than the way of the world. His kingdom's not of the world. Remember, we saw that. But at the end of the day, he either is the king or he isn't. And and one of the great uh, ironies, or again, the humor of God is this. When they took Jesus away, remember, this was the question that was being asked. Is he the king of the Jews? Do you believe that he is? Pilate, and this was very common practice, would put uh, a little inscription above the cross to say uh, what it was that the criminal was being convicted of. And on Jesus' cross, the inscription said, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Um, And what you you see happen in, in chapter 19 is that the chief priests realize that this has happened, and they go, no, 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 you've got to change it. You've got to put Jesus of Nazareth, who said he was the King of the Jews, and they run to Pilate and they say, you've got to change it. And this was what Pilate said to him. It's the only thing Pilate ever did in his life that was worthwhile. He said, I've written what I've written. 
And so for all eternity, this is how the story goes, that as Jesus was crucified, written above him says, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Why is that important? Because whether you recognize him as king or not, he is the king. He does have victory over death. And he is coming again. And he will rule when he comes again in a different way than he's ruling now. And you've got to decide, is he going to be your king or are you going to crucify him? Jesus says, uh, it makes no difference in reality who you say I am because I am who I am. God is who he is. He did send his son, Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, who died death because he wanted to defeat the one thing that no other king can defeat, death itself. And he rose from the grave, and we celebrate that on Easter. And one day, uh, we will either bow our knee to King Jesus or we'll say, crucify him. What are we going to do with King Jesus? What are you going to do with King Jesus? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your kingdom is not of this world, that it's different than the way that we do kingdom here. We thank you that you sent your son, Jesus, that he didn't give up on us but he went all the way. When we, when we cried out to him, this is enough, we'll take this. Stop here. He said, no, there's more. Because, Lord, we don't always know what we need. We think we know what we need, but oftentimes what we think we need is not all that you have planned for us. You have something more for us than we can even see or think, and we don't often see it until it happens. That's what happened to Mary and to Peter and to John and the rest of the disciples. They didn't know what was possible. They didn't know what kind of king Jesus truly was. And so I pray, Lord, that we would see King Jesus for who he is, the resurrected one. Victory over death. Oh, death, where's your sting? Lord, I pray that we would see King Jesus for who he truly is. Amen. Now... Uh, let me just talk over you for a sec here. Keep going. Uh, if you've never had Jesus, if you've never heard him say your personal name, what I want you to do in these next few songs is introduce yourself. Maybe you write a little note on, on the bulletin. You say, hi, Jesus, my name is David. I know I don't really know you, but I know that you know people personally. I'd like you to know me. And you know what he'll say? My name is Jesus. I'd love to be your king. I love the story of Mary. When she hears him say her name, she recognizes him. My prayer is that you recognize, and if you've never recognized Jesus, say your personal name. I pray that tonight that you'd actually hear him say your name you have to introduce yourself you can't keep him general and hope that he gets specific with you you've got to become specific with him and say Jesus I want to know you in a personal way and if you do that tonight you can know King Jesus and that's my prayer
So let's uh, worship together.